and welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 50, Monumental. We've hit the 50 mark. I want to thank everybody who's been supporting the show, who's been um, you know, sending it around to your friends and giving us those reviews on iTunes. And you know, we're, we're, we're building an audience here, and I really appreciate that. And uh, those people who have been sending emails, you know, thanking me or you know, complimenting the show, I really appreciate that. It always makes my day. Uh, and those messages when you tell me, you know, I'm listening to the show is the reason I got the <laughs> subscription to the Counterpunch magazine. That also is always really great to hear. Uh, Counterpunch, the, the, the print publication, is a really great way of supporting Counterpunch, of supporting this project. I mean, again, I know I've said it a million times, but we have so few spaces online uh, like Counterpunch, places that are, that are on the left that can provide the kind of analysis, critical analysis that's required. Let me remind people that only on Counterpunch, really, among all of the alternative media of the left, only on Counterpunch did you have a diversity of opinions about Bernie Sanders. Only on Counterpunch have you seen a diversity of opinions about what Trump represents, about what his movement represents. Only on Counterpunch have you really seen a lot of the critical discourse that is so necessary on the left, particularly at this time where we have seemingly these converging crises. And so I personally think that Counterpunch has never been more indispensable than it is now. And uh, I really think that uh, it's one of those things that you should really consider supporting. If you don't want to get the print subscription to the magazine, you can, of course, give us positive reviews on iTunes. That's free. Uh, you can send us around to your friends, promote the show, promote the website. Uh, all of that's really great. And then, of course, my website, stopimperialism.org, where you can find a lot of my work as well. Anyway, all of that out of the way, I want to turn to my guest this week, uh, a good friend of mine, somebody I've talked to many times before, but somebody whose opinions I, and, and analysis I respect uh not only not only on an intellectual level, but on a personal level, uh, I have a deep respect for this person. Um, he is a uh, professor, a scholar, an activist. Uh, he is the inimitable, if I could say so myself, uh, Tony Tony Montero, Doctor Anthony Montero, formerly of Temple University, always a great contributor to Black Agenda Report, to many publications and uh, other places online. Tony, what's up? Welcome to the show, Eric. That introduction floored me, man. <laughs> it's it's so good to be with you, man. Really, I remember. Uh, a couple of years ago, when on uh, your imperialism, stopimperialismnow.com uh, website, we did that long interview about Martin Luther King and his significance. Uh, and that was, I mean, that was really something. I really remember that. I appreciated it. Uh, your questions, the way the conversation went. And so it's really good to be with you. And I'm glad that you have this new platform uh, with counterpunch. I mean, as much, uh, uh, as much, uh, breadth and depth, uh, that you bring to analysis, uh, you need as uh, you need a powerful platform. And I'm glad that you have this one now. 
Oh, thank you for that. Really appreciate that. All right, niceties mm-hmm. out of the way. Let's get into <laughs> <laughs> let's get into let's get into the 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 heart of the matter here because um, you've just recently returned uh, to your to, to the friendly confines of Philadelphia uh, from your uh, trip to the Lions Den there in Cleveland for the Republican National Convention, and I'm I'm very interested to hear uh, what happened. There, what your what your take on that was? So, why don't we just start out generally? What what was your impression of the uh, situation in Cleveland, um, both in terms of the convention, but especially the kinds of uh, interactions you had, the kinds of experiences mm-hmm. you had that give us a little bit of a, a firsthand flavor of what Cleveland was like? Right, right. And you know, uh, Eric, I went to um, Cleveland because I wanted to get a sense of who these people were, who these delegates were. And I wanted to have the opportunity to talk to as many of them as possible and, you know, just to know what's going on here. But, you know, when you come into Cleveland or Northeast Ohio, you're, pardon me, you're in the eye of the storm of deindustrialization, impoverishment, immiseration, and the growing intensity of the oppression of working people. On the East Coast, we seldom get a sense of how devastating this neoliberal globalization has been uh, for the working class. And when you, when you go through Cleveland and you see these huge steel mills still standing and not even rusting, but still standing and nobody working. Or you go a couple of miles out to Lorraine or to Youngstown. So this convention took place in the center, the Midwest, the center of the the misery and poverty caused by uh, neoliberal globalization and actually what the financial oligarchs that run this nation have wrought upon the people. So then I'm, I'm, I'm saying to myself, you know, uh, are these delegates, and at least the ones I could talk to and get a sense of others, are they coming uh, here to Cleveland with a program, with an attitude, with an approach that seeks to provide some relief and some answers uh, for the people of the industrial Midwest and let us say Cleveland specifically, or are they coming with a program to maintain the status quo? And what do the delegates think? So I I had a chance to talk to people from the Texas delegation. Uh, In fact, uh, I had a small conversation encounter with the black woman who confronted Ted Cruz at that meeting of the uh, Texas delegation, and she asked him about his pledge to support uh, the nominee. I I, I had a a brief conversation. She's the former mayor of a very small uh, city in in Texas. I met with delegates from California and from South Carolina and, uh, and maybe some others. And then I had a chance to look at the role of the media the power of the media, the uh, uh, 
omnipresence of the media and how it operates as part of the regime of control of the masses. Uh, and then I was looking at what was going on in the convention, that is the speeches and so on. And all of these were parts of a whole, Cleveland and Northeast Ohio, the delegates, the leaders and nominees of the Republican Party, and then the media. And I would say this, that all of this that I saw, including first from the delegates, the delegates at the Republican Party convention, from a class and socioeconomic and income uh, position, are far lower down uh, the income ladder than most of the delegates coming to the Democratic Party in Philadelphia. In other words, just from the standpoint of the delegates, we're talking about a, a, a group of people who look more like ordinary uh, Americans and are closer to working class Americans than what we will see here in Philadelphia. The other thing is, since you don't have that super delegate structure, uh, uh, dominating of uh, the convention, there was, it seemed to me, more spontaneity and freedom, even freedom of thought and discussion in my, in my talks with delegates, you know, on the ground. And this was not a, you know, a scientific sample. It's just an ethnography. The other thing is that the Republican Party that came out of that convention both from the level of the delegates and from uh, what appear to be the leadership of the Republican Party is vastly different than the Republican Party of eight years ago. Uh, I, had a, I had a brief conversation, maybe about 10, 15 minutes, with Michael Steele, the former uh, uh, chairman, national chairman, black national chairman of the Republican Party. And I asked him, I said, Michael, do you think that there are two Republican parties at this convention that are irreconcilable and cannot be uh, uh, brought together in a united front, even for the election? And he said, no, uh, this is normal. Uh, we ha you know, it's a little bit more tense than in the past, but the party will be held together. Now, this was the day before Ted Cruz gave his speech. And... He was, um, you know, booed, as everyone saw. But what people didn't see was that his wife, Ted Cruz's wife, had to be escorted from the hall by armed guards. And people were shouting at her as she left, Goldman Sachs, Goldman Sachs. I think that was very, very important in understanding something about the sentiment uh, at that convention. Uh, that's what I most of what I would say just at this point about my own experience. Yeah, that's interesting what you're saying about, um, mm -hmm. you know, the delegates and about the way that, uh, you know, the tenor of the kinds of conversations you were having. Now, there's a couple of questions that that I would raise. Uh, number one would be whether or not what you're describing is actually a fundamental reorientation of the Republican Party mm -hmm. and reconstruction of the Republican Party, or if this is more a 
temporary pulling back away from this election of the corporate Republican neocon elements that have dominated the party for a long time because we've seen all of the reports. We know that a lot of the prominent neocons up to and including the Koch brothers are in effect supporting mm-hmm. Hillary Clinton, whether overtly or covertly, they're supporting mm-hmm. Hillary Clinton. And by not supporting Donald Trump, they are in effect supporting Hillary Clinton anyway, uh, at least from the corporate mm-hmm. side of all of this. So the question I would have would be, is this an aberration or is this a real fundamental change to the Republican Party? Because on the one hand, I can see what you're saying. On the other hand, um, you you hear the reports from people who were there, like there was, I forget who it was now, but some Republican Party hack who was talking about how uh, this convention was unlike any Republican convention he had ever been to because there was almost no corporate presence. There was very little corporate uh, sponsorship, very little of the corporate lobbying army that is normally at the convention. And so my question is, is that because the Republican Party is changing or is it because they're simply trying to ride out the Trump phenomenon, assuming Trump flames out in the election and then come back four years later strong? Yeah, yeah. Uh, And clearly, you know, what I said about the absence of a strong and overt and in-your-face corporate presence, that is very true. You know, you had no sense of major corporations uh, being there. You know, if, if, look, if you go to an NAACP convention, my God, you know, you see all of the major corporations, Coca-Cola, Apple, IBM. I mean, it's like they're running the show, but it was not present here. Uh, now, to your question, is this a temporary uh, aberration and the corporate uh, uh, traditional leaders of the Republican Party after Trump is uh, defeated? I put quotes around that because that's a big question mark right now. Uh, they will retake the party uh, and rebuild it. Um, I think that's what a lot of people would hope for, the Mitt Romneys and the Bushes and, and others. My sense, and this is not just from the convention, but looking at events uh, over a longer period of time, uh, they will never be able to rebuild the old Republican Party because the Republican Party, as it had morphed, was the Republican Party that comes out of Nixon and the Southern strategy, transforming it into first, as Nixon called it, a party of the silent majority, uh, 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 the white man's party, if you will. And so it became increasingly reliant upon working people, the lower middle class, as the base. But suddenly, uh, and this comes in the wake of the 2008-2009 epic recession, suddenly you get these rebellions from the working classes and the lower middle classes who were uh, hurt deeply by the recession, morphing into what we see now because the same same base of the Republican Party has not recovered from the Great Recession in spite of what the government numbers are saying. In fact, see themselves going even further backward. 
Now, if you would have asked me, and this is my, you know, provisional uh, 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 predict, uh, evaluation, judgment prediction, the Republican Party, as we have known it, will cease to exist. Uh, what will place, I have no idea, and no one does. We are in a politically fluid moment. Uh, and now Trump has said that if he's elected in five to 10 years, he will make the Republican party into a workers party. What that means, no one knows, but he is basically, I mean, in any way, he's saying that the Republican party will cease to be a party of the corporate oligarchs, and it will cease to be a party that is used that uses and manages and directs the white working class and lower middle classes and poor. He has said that. At the convention, he said, and he acknowledged that the base of the Republican Party had become voiceless and that he wanted to be the voice of those who have been erased from the political calculation of the people, the oligarchs who run the country. Uh, I think this is more than a temporary... Uh, let Trump uh, uh, burn and, and go down, and afterwards we, the George Wills, the Mitt Romneys, and the rest of them will come back and reform the party. First of all, I don't think they have the energy to do that, uh, and I don't think they have the will to do that. I think all of those people are now exiting the stage of history in despair and, and nihilism. Uh, so I think something new is going to be born, and that will be decided by what the working people do. And that means the working people in the Sanders movement and the working people in the Trump movement. And those who are outside of both of those movements but are suffering as a result of the policies of the neoliberal capitalists. Absolutely. Now, here's the here's the thing, and I'm not. I, I want to preface this question by noting that mm-hmm. my use of um, of this uh, of this point is not in the same way that uh, liberals want to use it. Mm-hmm. But uh, mm-hmm. I think the point needs to be made that I watch Trump's speech. Matter of fact, uh, you know, my 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 partner is such a sadomasochist that she had the convention on damn near gavel to gavel. I watched the whole goddamn thing pretty much, you know, um, and I'm 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 still getting nightmares. But uh, watching watching this, I have to say, okay. When Trump talks about the working class or when various people who are on the stage and whatever talk about the working class, talk about workers, empowering workers, all of these things, right? There is this sense that, wow, you know, they're really speaking a certain kind of populism. But you have to remember that populism is precisely the rhetoric that fascists use. It is always that way. Hitler used tremendous 
populist rhetoric, populist sentiment. Let's not forget what the Nazi party was. It was a workers' party, quote-unquote, right? Mm -hmm. Workers Mm -hmm. were empowered by, quote-unquote, at least in theory, by fascism, right? The, the, The notion of the rebirth of the nation after having been stabbed in the back by the communists and the Jews, right? That, that was the underpinning of, of, of Nazism in its rise. Now, am I saying that Trump is Hitler? Of course not. Am I saying that Republicans mm-hmm. are Nazis? Of course not. What, although there are elements in there that we'll, we'll talk right. about later. But mm-hmm. what I am getting at, though, is that there's two ways to read the rhetoric, you can read it as an empowerment of the uh, disaffected working class that has been victimized by globalization and all of the rest of that neoliberalism. Yes, true. You could also read it as seizing upon all of those sentiments with a flair of fascism to it. And that's what you hear in the endless droning from Trump and all the rest of them about law and order quote-unquote, law and order. I'm the law and order candidate, right? Well, we've heard that before, and we've heard that in a number of ways and in a number of incarnations and a number of times throughout history, and we know what quote-unquote law and order means when it's in America and specifically when it's white Americans on the right saying it, okay? We know what that means. And so the question I have for you is I'd like to dissect a little bit if there is a distinction or a delineation to be made between populist rhetoric that appeals to workers and populist rhetoric that appeals to workers that is textbook fascism. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, you know, uh, fascism, uh, as we are calling it these days, uh, can come in uh, many forms, can be dressed up in many ways. Uh, Fascism can take the form, as you say, of demagogic populism, which plays upon the discontent of the masses of people, especially one part of the masses of working people, in this instance, white working people. Uh, And then, you know, raises slogans and, and, and stokes an imagination of a idyllic past Uh, that we will return to. That is one form that fascism comes in. Uh, And of course, when we think about that, of course, we think about Hitler, the Nazi party, (coughs) Germany, and the philosophers, for example, Martin Heidegger, whose whole phenomenology was based upon this idea of a non-technological idyllic past. Uh, But then... Uh, according to the nature of the regime uh, which the fascists are attempting to uphold and preserve, fascism can also come in a, and I put quotes, a liberal dressing. In other words, the same policies, maybe even worse, that a liberal who the majority of people, especially the working people and African-Americans and Latinos, trust who appear to be part of the legacy of the New Deal, but only a little more practical for these times. Well, that form of fascism is also a form of fascism. And I think we have to, in order to uh, turn 
our language about fascism away from sloganizing to a substantive understanding, we have to look at the nature of the regime at this time in the United States. And by regime, I'm not using it pejoratively. I'm really talking about the system of class rule in the United States. And I would say there are three pillars that uphold the regime that is, Ameri that is the United States. And that is, first of all, domestic repression and uh, pol uh, over poli uh, a highly organized and militarized police force and prison system. That's one part of it. The second part of it is a, uh, a neoliberal financial oligarchic system, which is also global and therefore seeks not only to dominate the American political economy, but the global political economy through the uses, as you have made note of many, many times, all of the instruments of, of finance and the fictitious capital uh, uh, accumulation. Uh, this is the hedge funds and, and so much of this. And then the third part of it is uh, on the neoconservative project of regime change, chaos, and constant war. As regards regime change, the two targets of American imperialism are Russia and Iran. And Russia, first of all, now I would say, some people would say China, but I would say for regime change, it is Russia and Iran, and Iran first. Now, if you take those three pillars of the regime, fascist, which, and I think we need an accurate definition of fascism, and I go back to the 1930s, the most aggressive, predatory, uh, warlike, uh, reactionary elements of the ruling class. The regime in the United States, and you have noted this on numerous occasions, is a completely reactionary regime. And I think Reaction in the United States is grounded in the three pillars that I have mentioned. I think that if you have a candidate of the status quo, unequivocally of the status quo, unapologetically of the status quo, that is the candidate, no matter how he or she is presented in the media, of the most reactionary elements of American society. And who, that's why we have to make a difference between appearance and substance. If you were to ask me, the fascization of American society took off with the Clinton administration. In other words, Clinton, not Nixon, not even Reagan, began the fascization process. And why is that? It put on fast track the development of these three pillars of the regime. Yeah, that's a great point. Now, I, I want to push back, though, a little bit, because I want to, since yep. when we first... When and, we, and forgive me if I talk too much, Eric. I don't, I don't mean I to I will talk never forgive you for that. I will never okay, forgive right. you for that. <laughs> okay. I will hold that against you forever. Now, the, oh, what, I want to, uh, what I want to point out, though, you mentioned when we first started chatting here uh, about that conversation we had now, I guess that was like four years ago or something, about right. Martin Luther yeah. King. And I remember that well because it was one of my favorite interviews that we, that, that we ever did. And 
One mm-hmm. thing that you said in that interview that I want to bring up here because I think it's germane to this conversation has to do with when Martin Luther King and other civil rights uh, leaders and, and, and activists went to Chicago. And when they went to Chicago and they mm-hmm. were f- and they were face to face with a kind of open right. fascist racism that they had never even encountered in the South. A kind of almost, you know, Nazi-like white supremacy that was, I think, and the way that you described it, that King talked about it as more vicious than anything he knew in the South. Okay? Absolutely. Now, taking that and understanding who it is that was that 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 fascist you know white supremacy that king was referring to that was the quote unquote white working class okay mm-hmm. that is the white working class that you're talking about here that's being activated and mobilized and organized around trump okay around this movement the disaffected white working class and for them they're not simply seeing this in terms of economics, no matter what people want to say about it. It is always and inextricably linked to the white supremacy, the racism, and the fascism that is at the core of the value system of America mm-hmm. and especially of white America. Okay, so this is what I want to. This is what I want to parse out a little bit, so that when we're talking about Trump remaking the Republican Party, it's. I, I would argue it's not solely remaking the Republican Party into a party of popu- of economic populism. It is remaking mm-hmm. the Republican Party also into the party of open white supremacy, of open racism, mm-hmm. of open fascism. Okay, now, mm-hmm. th- don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting that that means that Hillary Clinton is somehow better. I'm not at all suggesting that. In many ways, I'd say the opposite. But... Be that as it may, when we're trying to analyze the actual political character of this movement as it's evolving, I don't think we can look at it simply as white working class and leave it as that at that. I think that there's a lot more built in to this abstraction known as white working class. And what's built into it? Racism, oppression and violence. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, that's true. And, and you know, just like the. Uh... King uh, encountered in Skokie, Illinois, uh, the most vicious Nazi racism, including the, the, the swastika banner, than he had experienced anywhere in the South. And he was a Southerner, uh, which, you know, which was a way of saying that white supremacy is not and was not a Southern problem. It's a national problem. But just like you had uh, those Nazis, and I don't know how many of them there were, uh, you know, and they were kind of imitating the uh, white people who uh, uh, hurled insults at the young children integrating uh, the high school in Arkansas or who attacked the sitting people sitting in at lunch counters or burned the buses of Freedom Riders. Uh, and so when they got north, you had those elements uh, or similar elements as well. But you also had uh, the Viola Liuzos from Detroit, Michigan, who went down to help the voting rights campaign and was murdered. Pardon me, a daughter of the white working class and the wife of a teamster 
You had James Red, the minister who went uh, into Selma and was beaten to death, and others. So there are both sides of the white working class. And the question is, the two questions, what sentiment and what ideology is ascendant at what particular time? Obviously, over the last 40 years, the racist elements have been ascendant or racist elements, uh, especially within the Republican Party, have been organizing the white workers. You know what I'm saying? And that has been ascendant. Uh, but at the same time, there is the oppositional element, the element among white workers that are oppositional to white supremacy, who understand even its influence upon them, but reject it and try to find ways to struggle against it. The majority of white workers have attempted to remain indifferent to it. It's not my problem. Uh, the American dream is available to everyone. And so all of that, you know, all of those uh, kind of uh, mantras and slogans and stuff. But now they're faced with an economic crisis. And you have two sentiments competing for the soul of the white working class, which at the same time is burdened by white supremacy in their psychology, in their imaginations of what America should be. They're burdened by that, but yet they're confronted with objective reality. You go to the Midwest, you go to Youngstown or Lorraine or Cleveland or Flint or Detroit. You can be as white supremacist as you want, but when you lose your job, you're a white supremacist without a job who has lost his or her home, who can't educate his or her children. And then you look across the color line and you see a black worker who looks more like you in every other way except the color of their skin than either of you looks like the elite who have gotten away like bandits out of this whole system. And thus, you then have to make a choice, an existential choice which is the choice that has always confronted the working class throughout its history. What side are you on? Will you stand for yourself? And once you realize, I don't care if you are the racial majority in a country, that as a worker, you cannot win just by being with white workers. I think that's where we are in this country. Obviously, and you're right about this, Trump on race allows enough ambiguity and even open statements for white supremacists and neo-Nazis to say this is a white movement. But then on the other side, he is unambiguous about who was injured the most by what went on uh, since, you know, since this neoliberal thing and since the great of recession. He is unambiguous about that. And his positions come as close to the working class as you're going to get, not just from a Republican, but for anyone running in the two 
parties of the bourgeoisie. There's no question about it. And thus, if you put that, that trilogy that I think is the foundation of the American regime, two of those, regime change and global chaos and war and neoliberal uh, trade deals and the rule of the financial oligarchy, two of those, Trump is an opponent of them, at least in his statements. People say, well, you can't believe anything he says. But this is a political campaign. This is political discourse on two of the things that I think are the foundation of the regime. Trump is closer to the side of the working class and the progressive element than anyone else is. On the police state, he is in the camp of the regime. And that, you know, and, and there he is closer to Hillary Clinton than he is to the masses of people protesting the uh, police state. That's the way I see it. Yeah, and, and you're right, and I'll, I'll end here. You're absolutely right, Eric. Anyone who would close her or his eyes to the danger of fascism, which has been with us for longer than people want to acknowledge, it's not just the recent danger, but anyone who would close their eyes to that is either naive or an apologist. And I don't want to be either. Yep. A uh, lot more to say on that, but I think we're overdue for a break. So <laughs> let's take let's take our break and uh, we'll continue right there. Uh, you're listening to Counterpunch Radio. We'll be right back.
And we're back here on Counterpunch Radio. Strange days indeed, we have to say, about the political situation in the United States and really around the world. And we're going to get to the international uh, question here in a second. But I do want to pick up where we left off just before we went to break, um, you know, about the nature of uh, the Republican Party, the nature of this movement, the, the, the class nature. And you were alluding to something uh, before we went to the break there, Tony, about... I guess for, you know, you didn't use this phrase, but I'll use it, class unity, right? The the, the unity mm-hmm. of the working class across racial divides. But again, it's, this is, this is where when we do a really, you know, thoughtful analysis of Trump, there is this internal contradiction within Trump's own movement that on the mm-hmm. one hand, it presents itself as the voice of uh, the working, you know, working people, especially white working mm-hmm. people and the quote unquote silent majority of working people. On the other hand, it openly embraces all of the racial divisiveness. And so, I would I would push back against the notion that what Trump's campaign is doing is mobilizing a unified working class. I don't see that at all. I see quite the opposite. In fact, what I see is a essentially a segmentation, a fragmentation of the working class towards a white working class that is justifiably angry about all of the things that you said, irrespective of the rest of the working class. One other thing that comes to mind, Tony, in, in a hey, conversation... Hey, Eric, yeah. Eric, could I, just, could I just correct one thing? Uh, I didn't mean to imply or suggest that Trump's uh, objective is to unite the working class. I don't think there is a concept of class unity and how to get to it within the broad working class at this time, period. I'm saying, however, that the issues that he is addressing is compelling, and the objective conditions, by the way, is compelling uh, white working people to look at themselves and their conditions different than they have uh, at least in 30 or 40 years. Yeah, uh, and and that's and that's good, and I I can I can appreciate that, and I can accept that. But what I'm saying, okay. and again, I'm not suggesting that every single person waving a Trump sign is some kind of you know closet Klansman. Mm-hmm. I, I I understand no. that that's yeah. not the case. I know that that's not the case, but. The reality Mm -hmm. is that political movements, especially political movements of the far right, are never going to be determined by, you know, the moderate views of a majority. They're going to be determined by the views of a vocal and militant organized minority. Okay, that is the nature of fascist movements, right? The fact that those who were supporting Hitler or those who were supporting Mussolini or whatever, many of them were honest working people. But the ones who were wearing the black shirts or the brown shirts, who were out on the streets, who were cracking skulls and doing that dirty work that is required of fascism, at least at, the, at that time, they were something, uh, I think, separate from what you might call just the working class. And I think similarly in the United States, we need to 
be very conscientious about that fact that ultimately, if you're concerned about a fascist movement, and I understand the corporate fascism of Hillary Clinton and of the status quo, Mm. I understand all of Mm -hmm. that. But if you're going to be conscientious about a, a nascent fascist movement in its ascendancy, you don't worry about the the majority reasonable more or less white working class you worry about the minority who use this as a tool for mobilization and organization at a time when you're looking at potential economic disaster what we saw in 2008 2009 you already mentioned it it's uh, it, it has sent shockwaves through the white right. working class or through the working right. class in general and through the global yeah. economy as a whole now multiply mm-hmm. that by some exponential value and you get some semblance of what a global economic catastrophe would look like and what would be the political mm-hmm. outcome of that what would its political mm-hmm. expression look like how much more extreme could it get beyond where we already are these are the questions i think that have to be asked if we're going to be mm-hmm. honest about what uh the 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 movement really represents and i just want to make one final point and i'll let you you know address these <laughs> yeah. Beautiful. Trump is not the danger. It mm-hmm. is the movement congealing around Trump that is the danger. That is something that is almost not, it, it is almost completely being ignored. Uh, you know, I've been raising this point, I think, you know, I don't know who else is, but it is the movement in its infancy. We're just seeing it now. It's been, you know, more or less latent in a sort of underground fashion, at least since 1965, right? At least since mm-hmm. the end of Jim Crow. And now we're seeing mm-hmm. it have an open overt expression for now at least under the banner of Trump but what happens when Trump leaves the scene either having lost to Hillary Clinton or after four or eight years of a presidency Trump leaves the scene the movement stays and now it's organized and now it's mobilized and now it's waiting for the next demagogue who's going to seize control of it become the real fascist leader that Trump never did that is concerning to me. That is worrying. Yeah. And that's something that is being, is being ignored to our peril. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, a couple of things in response. Um, first of all, uh, in this election cycle, I don't think one could objectively uh, refer to Trump as the ultra-right. I think that as this election will, uh, will move forward we will see Trump running in many ways and not exclusively to the left of Hillary Clinton. Agreed. Uh, I agree. You know, and this is the great irony. Is it I know. Not, you I know, agree. Eric, yep. this, yeah. Uh, on, on, on very strategic issues, he will run to the left. Uh, Tony, so uh, I just want to, I just want to interject. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead, Listeners, yeah. This is exactly the point that Jeff Sinclair and I made a few weeks ago. Go back to listen to the conversation I had with Jeff Sinclair on this show. Mm -hmm. We said exactly that same point. Trump is to the left of Clinton on free trade. Trump is or on trade in general. uh, The TPP Mm -hmm. specifically. Trump is Mm -hmm. to the Trump is to the left of Clinton on war and on regime change Mm -hmm. and on NATO. Trump is to the left Mm -hmm. of Clinton on protecting Social Security and the welfare state. You know, so so on certain critical issues. 
I totally agree. Trump is running to the left of Clinton, and that's what's made this election so bizarre and so difficult to really see the grand scope of it. Anyway, sorry, Tony, go ahead. Yes, yes. Yeah. No, 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 no. I, I, it's, you know, and that is a very significant and important point to be made. And that is a political point that the infantile left cannot understand. That's true. You know, it was so interesting, if I might say this, in uh, Cleveland, uh, the left, and I'm putting quotes here, really the infantile, narrow left, were unable to get any significant numbers of people to come there and protest. It's almost as though the people instinctively know that the target of protest must be Hillary Clinton. But now, having said that, that Trump is not the ultra-right candidate running against the status quo liberal uh, Hillary Clinton. That is not the case. But the other thing is, how do you fight incipient and even institutionalized fascism or institutionalized um, uh, authoritarianism. And that is the whole question uh, of the United Front. Exactly. And, you know, I remember a few years ago, you had, you organized what I thought was a magnificent, and I told you at the time, conference uh, to try to develop an anti-austerity United Front. Well, you know, maybe history and and time was not ready for it then. But it, it has to be something like that. And the United Front Against Fascism will not go forward in the name of the United Front Against Fascism. It will have to be a united front for, for an end to austerity, for peace, for a redirection of, of, uh, of oligarchic capitalist profit uh, to the people, a redistribution, as it were. That is the fight against fascism, because fascism, as you pointed out, and extreme right wing forces take hold in a population when the population sees no way out. We have to provide the entire working class, which, as you said, has been divided since the days of slavery and have only come together uh, sparingly throughout our history, which have led many scholars incorrectly to conclude that the working class will never unite. Now, when we say unity, we're not talking about absolute unity. We're talking about, in my mind, what Gramsci called a counter-hegemonic historic block. It doesn't have to be the majority, but it can be the critical mass of the working class and its allies. And that's why loosening and rupturing the hole that the blackness leadership class and the democratic uh, leadership council and the elite corporate wall street types to loosen the hole and disrupt the hole that they have on the black community because once that ends then you open up a new pathway another pathway i should say to uniting the working class i think and this is my last statement the working class right now, and the working masses, the unemployed, the youth, 
the lumpen proletariat, the poor, are more primed to unite than any time in the last 80 years. Mm -hmm. But Tony... The question I will I will push back on that with, uh, right. with you, and I agree with I look I, I'm 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 pushing back even though I agree with a lot of what you're saying, but I think this conversation is critical. What you're saying yeah. is true, but you say that the working class will unite, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But the problem is how they are uniting and who Absolutely. is who is or is not included in that uniting uh, force that you're seeing. So, for instance, mm -hmm. you have, you have uh, uh, you know, this phenomenon of the working class, you know, quote-unquote, uniting. At the same time, who's not included? Poor blacks, immigrants, mm -mm. Muslims, mm -mm. and so forth. I mean, no. you, can, you can see where I'm going with this. In other words... But, 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 but hold on, let me, let me just say one thing, if I might interrupt you. That's not working class unity. First of all, let me, let I, me describe what I'm talking about, if I might. I, and this is a politically important conceptual understanding. The unity of the working class is not an idealistic or romantic ideal. It is not absolute unity. You know, you, I mean, you can have that in a, a, a mural or a, a, a working class uh, painting. No, we're not talking about that. Which, again, I want to emphasize, we're talking about a historic block that is grounded in the working class, that is counter-hegemonic, we would say counter-empire, counter-imperialism, and so on and so forth. It is, not every, it is not every part or every individual in the working class, but it is unity, and, this is, and you're right, it is, un, it is principled unity based upon a minimum program that the unity of the working class cannot exclude the unemployed, cannot exclude the immigrant, includes everybody based whatever their religion or sexual orientation or whatever is. But historically, that is what we're talking. About. But historically, sorry, but yes. but historically, it hasn't, and 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 that is that, that very is, rarely, that very is, rarely. Well, in at least in the United States, we can point to we can point to many different periods of of U.S. history. Just looking just at the just at the history of the working class in the United States and the labor struggle mm -hmm. in this, you know, the history of the labor struggle in this country. One of the major obstacles to real working class power in the United States was the racial exclusionary angle. Right, that that the, the unions were racially exclusive for a long time. Most of them were, including some of the unions that survive today, having been deeply reactionary. I remember talking to uh, African Americans who had been uh, teachers uh, in in New York City, going back to the days of the New York City teachers' strike, when the when the union itself sided against the black communities of Brownsville and Ocean mm -hmm. Hill, and uh, against community control of schools and all of the rest of that. We know that history. The history of the labor movement is is you know. It is, in effect, I mean, it is rife with racism and segregationism within the labor movement. So the reason I bring that up is not to, you know, rain on the unity parade. It is to say that when we talk about working class unity in the United States, you have to see that, 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 that how some people are viewing that is not how you and I are viewing that.
And, and absolutely, that, and that's important though because you and, and, and that and that's what separates the left from the right. Well, but or the not, left from the liberals or but, from the social democrats. You know, part of part of why we call the current trade union leadership misleaders is because they have abandoned the struggle for class unity. And you know what makes the leaders that came out of the 1930s and 40s so extraordinary in all of the, you know, not all complete, imperfect, with all of the imperfections, what they did was to build a union movement based upon class unity across, in 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 that instance, across racial divides. It was defeated going forward after the Reagan years and the union capitulation and so on. But yes, I agree with you. These are problems that have to be tackled. These are problems of history as well as problems of the future. But my, but, but, but Tony, the question is, are we in a better position or in a worse yes. position to tackle, to position. tackle those problems given and, the ascendancy yes. of a, for lack of a better word, Trumpism? No, we're in a better position in my judgment. Now, you can come back to me a year from now and say, you said we were in a better position and things have gotten worse. And then I would have to confess to you, I was too, I was overly optimistic. I sense that we are in a better position to create, and I'm using the language of Antonio Gramsci, a counter-hegemonic historic block that is a political unity of the working class that will become, that can become the foundation of a broader unity of all progressive forces that oppose uh, the, the global economy, the financialization of the economy, wars, uh, regime change, and the police state. We are in a better position, those of us on the broad left, not the infantile narrow left, the broad left that is based upon analysis and theory and practice and not upon slogans. We are in a better position. That is part of what I brought back from being at the Republican Party convention. And I'm, I'm going, and I hope I'll be inside or near the inside of the Democratic Party convention, because I want to see what close up this Bernie Sanders movement is really made up really made of politically and whether or not they can transcend Bernie Sanders and the Democratic Party and going forward become a kind of a vanguard in the fight for class unity, for people's unity, and what we're broadly calling, and I put quotes around this because I would not name it that uh, for obvious political reasons, an anti-fascist front. Well, okay, here's what I will, here's what I will say then. <laughs> Um, I, I, I agree partially, but Mm -hmm. here's the problem where I disagree is the notion that, you know, quote unquote, we are in a better situation. Maybe we're in a better situation at this very moment right now at the end of July. Okay. Maybe, maybe, (laughs) maybe so maybe. Okay. But here's the problem we have across the entire continent of Europe the ascendancy of the far right. 
We see it in Hungary, the Jobbik Party. We see it in Greece with the Golden Dawn. We see it in the Netherlands with the People's Party and Geert Wilders. We saw it. Uh, we see it in France with uh, Marine Le Pen and the and the National Front, which is likely to be the next government in France. Particularly considering all of these terrorist attacks and everything else, you mm-hmm. can almost guarantee that the far right will be in in leadership in France. You have a far right in in ascendancy in almost every kind in. In Italy as well, you see it in a lot of places in Europe, and then we saw with Brexit the same phenomenon. Now there were there were definitely working class people who were voting for Brexit as a vote against neoliberalism of the European mm-hmm. Union. That's for sure. We know that to be a fact. We also know that fifty two percent that is the, the the side that voted for Brexit, which got fifty two percent of the vote, was not fifty two percent of the population being fully against. Mm-hmm immigrants or anything like that. However, a a sober and objective political analysis of Brexit has to uh, uh, point out the fact that the leading edge of the Brexit movement was far-right, xenophobic, racist, reactionary fascism. That's what it was, from UKIP and Nigel Farage to the BNP, the British National Party, which is more or less a neo-Nazi outfit, to the EDL, which are the more or less the fascist street gangs, and a number of other issues. It was about, you heard it from countless interviews. This was about immigration. This was about immigration, the refugees, and immigration, and we don't want uh, to lose our country. What's the slogan of Brexit? It was uh, taking back our country. Take back our country. That's no different from make America great again. It's the exact same sentiment. And so here is the question. When you say we're it, we meaning the left, because you're, you know, you right. and me, or we're Marxists, we're leftists, socialists, right? Commies, whatever, you know, we, <laughs> we, when we say we are in a better position, right. I question that logic because when you mm-hmm. look at Europe, we are nothing compared to what the right is becoming. We are in a worse situation now than we have been at any time in my lifetime, certainly, when it comes to that question. Look at what we had 15 years ago. 15 years ago, we had Gaddafi in Africa uniting the continent in an anti-imperialist, anti-colonial direction. We had in Latin America, Hugo Chavez uniting Latin America in an anti-imperialist direction, moving away from the empire, moving towards real building of a, what you're calling, counter-hegemonic block globally. Chavez is gone. Gaddafi is gone. Fascism is on the rise. The economy is tanking. All of these circumstances converging to me, as far as I'm concerned, tell me we are not in a better position. We are in a much more dangerous one. Hmm. Wow. (laughs) You know, the thing I love about you, Eric, two things. Your commitment to discourse, critical and reasonable discourse. And the second thing is your uh, deep skepticism about things. Um, And I think both of those are great. But I would I would say, however, and, and I have to acknowledge, I don't know as much about Uh, the political situation and the politics uh, throughout Europe. And I don't know the complete composition, class and and ideological 
of these movements like Le Pen's and the other movements. Uh, and I don't know that that the Brexit movement is analogous to the Golden Dawn in uh, I'm not Greece. saying that. I, I want to be clear because mm-hmm. people attack okay. me okay. endlessly for what I said about Brexit. I'm not saying Brexit okay. is like, you know, the Nazis of the Golden Dawn. What I am mm-hmm. saying, though, is that a major segment of the Brexit movement is from that same mm-hmm. milieu, the same ideological framework that is that the the motivation behind the Brexit vote was not an uh, purely, you know, economic, but that rather it mm-hmm. saw in Brexit and a, a chance to close Britain off from Muslims, close Britain off mm-hmm. from immigrants from Eastern Europe. I mean, they see they see in England the Eastern European and Muslim immigrants no different than the far right in the US sees Mexican immigrants. I I mean, they see them as mm-hmm. infiltrators who have essentially come to the country uh, for free benefits, for it to, for a parasitical lifestyle, and that the body politic needs to be purified. I mean, that mm-hmm. is, they wouldn't put it in those terms, but I will, that is ultimately mm-hmm. what the a major thrust of that movement was, in, in my view. Mm-hmm. And I think we should be very clear. Yes, there were working class people supporting Brexit. Yes, there were labor people supporting Brexit. And anti-imperialists supporting Brexit for a lot of good reasons. I get all of that. But ultimately, that vote was about new imperialism versus old imperialism. Do you want the imperialism of the corporate EU, or do you want the imperialism of the old British Empire? It was at its core, a reactionary dichotomy, one that provided a false choice. And I think that similarly, we need to ask the question in this country and around the world, are we once again being faced with a false choice here? Mm -hmm. Well, I I think just from the standpoint of Europe, and, and again, I have to acknowledge, I don't know as much as you do about the particular movements, but the issue confronting the European working classes are two. One, whether sovereignty uh, and citizenship uh, of, uh, of the working people of various countries uh, will be relinquished to Brussels. In other words, do corporate elites uh, uh, trump ordinary working class, middle class citizens of the various countries of the EU. That's number one. The second question is, and this confronts all of Europe, whether or not the U.S. and, uh, in this sense, Clinton, Hillary's uh, project of regime change in Russia will go forward with the support of the European Union under the umbrella of NATO? Those are the two questions. Uh, And what side particular movements and class forces and ideological and political forces come down on those two questions, to me, is central to understanding European politics in general and the national politics of various countries including the Brexit vote. But I, w- I want to just segue quickly to the United States. And again, it is my judgment 
And you said in your lifetime, I think my lifetime is a little longer than yours. <laughs> that yeah. doesn't mean I that know more true. than you. That is true. <laughs> Nor does it mean that you're better looking that, than that me. That is true. You're, that's you're, <laughs> you're, you're, you're what they call an old head. Yeah. Yeah, OG. You yeah. Know? <laughs> o, o, OG Gramscian. OG Gramscian. Yeah, yeah. go ahead. Yeah, Ed Bois. Yeah. yeah. But, oh, that's right. But, sure. But you know... <laughs> But, you know, um, you know and, and you're right to look at the long waves of history, not just short periods or decades. And for me, the long wave is the 80-year or so period from the New Deal up to now, or one could even say from the end of World War II and the establishment of the framework of global economics and uh, politics. Bretton, Bretton Woods and NATO and then the European Union and all of that up to these trade deals, uh, etc. Uh, in that long stretch, the working class has been, in the United States, uh, in terms of its organized power, has been whittled down to practically nothing. And its leaders have made it an arm of the corporate oligarchs who operate against the working class itself. And therefore, no part of the working class has been politically independent of the two-party system. What makes this such an extraordinary moment is, though it's not complete, and, and I don't want to give that impression, we see insurgency trying to break the chains of political imprisonment that bind the working class to one of the two parties of capital. Now, the irony is that that struggle in this year took place within the two parties simultaneously and continued in spite of the fact that each party has chosen its nominee or presumptive nominee. I think an intelligent left, an ideologically clear left, a left committed to analysis and discourse as you are, can find solutions and political answers to the problems confronting the working class. We are not without resources. You know, I think it was Victor Hugo who said, Nothing is more powerful than an idea that has come. I think the idea of a new form of movement, a new type of unity, a new, as King called it, a new action synthesis, new poor people's organization, poor people's marches, immigrant and poor people, immigrant and low-wage workers. We are on the cusp of that in my opinion. Does it have to come to complete fruition? No. There could be absolute disaster and everything could be lost. Because what I am talking about and what you are talking about constitutes an existential threat to the systems and the status quo. That's why I'm saying we're in a, we're in a unique 
and very positive political moment. Well, I think that we're definitely in a unique moment, and I think that history yeah. <laughs> his, history will history will prove whether it was a positive moment or not. But um, absolutely, I think that I think that two two points, and I realize we're running out of time here, but this is what always mm-hmm. happens when I talk to you. Um, that <laughs> that uh, the question the question that we have to confront is the following. We well, w- what we need to do is we need to play out this scenario. Let's assume Trump flames out in this election, as I think is quite likely he will. Um, and just from a purely from a purely Marxist uh, analysis here, I guess it's not really Marxist, but material ana- <laughs> material analysis yeah, yeah, here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Clinton is going to uh, fundraise light years ahead of Trump. Clinton mm-hmm. is going to have massive money behind her. Finance capital is behind her. The fundraising apparatus of the Democratic Party, including her vice mm-hmm. presidential pick, Tim Kaine, whose career is really as a fundraiser. Um, the funds are going to be there. I Maybe I'm cynical or whatever, but I think mm-hmm. after, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, after all is said and done and this convention in, in Philly is over and you see all of the ads telling you about Trump the boogeyman, ad after ad after mm-hmm. ad, radio spot mm-hmm. after radio spot, month after month of that, that Trump can't really compete with. Ultimately, I do believe that will have an effect because, you know, and I don't want to mm-hmm. be too, you know, whatever, condescending about it, but a lot of, a lot of Americans are... are are fooled by that sort of stuff, or rather, I should say, they're influenced by that sort of stuff. A lot mm-hmm. of people make Absolutely. their decisions based that way, and Trump can't compete there. Now, I understand he can get the free media; he knows how to get free media time mm-hmm. and all the rest of that. That's fine. But at the end of the day, the propaganda matters. The propaganda is, has an impact. Mm-hmm. Okay, so mm-hmm. so so, assuming that that's true, and assuming that Hillary Clinton does win in in a landslide or whatever wins in some fashion. The likelihood, the likelihood of a major global conflict is increased. Hillary Clinton mm-hmm. will blunder us right into world war. She, it is, it is entirely possible. I'm not saying that's a given. Mm-hmm. I'm saying that's possible. Mm-hmm. Her record of warmongering and uh, imperialism is almost unrivaled by anybody in Washington. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, she can lead us right into that global conflict. You play out the other mm-hmm. scenario. Hillary Clinton loses in an upset to Donald Trump. Donald Trump becomes the president. What changes? What do we actually see happen? Does Is Donald Trump, all the rhetoric and everything aside, is he able to dismantle neoliberalism and free trade? I would argue no. I would argue that those... That those ideologies those 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 key uh mm-hmm. you know f- elements of, mm-hmm. of of neoliberal of capitalism today those are much bigger than a president the president cannot right. dismantle the world trade organization the president is not going to uh you know eliminate all of the architecture that's been built over four decades of global trade he's not going to be able to do that it's just not within his power to do that on top of that Trump is going to be facing probably more opposition, political opposition, than any president, maybe ever, or certainly any president since uh, 
I don't know, Lincoln or something. You know what I mean? Like, there will be, Washington will be almost united against him, at least the major players Mm -hmm. in Washington. And and Wall Street. And Wall Mm -hmm. Street, sure. Okay, Mm -hmm. so how much is he going to actually be able to accomplish, given that scenario? I would argue very little. Well, well, let's let's start. And, And here, I think, we're still dealing in a fluid political situation. We're in Philadelphia, and, and we have to say Hillary Clinton is the presumptive nominee, uh, and, you know, 90% certain she will get the nomination. 90% and, not, Tony. 90%. Yeah, yeah. 99.99999. Yeah, okay, all right, all right. I won't quibble over that, but my, my larger point is this. Uh, she's chosen a... Uh, what is in essence a Republican as a running mate who himself brings baggage concerning corruption and uh, being paid by lobbyists and others while a state senator, I think it was in Virginia, and who is uh, more like uh, more like in terms of uh, certain social conservatism, more like uh, Mike Pence than he is like Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton on social questions, uh, but is a Wall Street politician. And we can't forget that the governor of Virginia is uh, Terry McAuliffe, one of the major architects of the whole Clinton Foundation, Clinton uh, political machine. But my point is this. The Democrats have to deal with three things, three choices. One, nominating Hillary Clinton, which they will do, and I agree, 99%. But since she is so flawed, 67% of the American people do not trust her. You know, when you and I were on Brian Becker's show, I raised the question, I don't know whether it's on the show or you and I talking afterwards, that there's a high probability that she will not run. Well, now it seems that she will accept the nomination. But who is to say she will go all the way to the general election. I mean, she could drop out. I mean, pardon me, um, uh, uh, Kane will be uh, the nominee, and they put uh, uh, Elizabeth Warren as vice president. It, It will take, I don't think money can buy her good name. I think that Trump is just that candidate who will exploit 24-7, who she is, corrupt Hillary, crooked Hillary. And and now with all of the WikiLeaks stuff coming out about how the Democratic Party primaries were rigged in spite of the fact that Wasserman Schultz and them were saying that we're going to conduct a fair nominating process. It was completely unfair. And not to Bernie Sanders. That's not who we're talking about. It was unfair to the voters who took time and energy and money to participate in what they thought was a fair process. Now, what the Hillary Clinton campaign is now saying is that, well, the Russians hacked our emails. So now you're raising the anti-Russian specter to justify your own corruption. Yeah, but... Uh, yeah, but well, let me just make this quick, yeah. quick point. See, I'm not convinced that she will necessarily stay in this for the whole time. Get, get past the convention, keep it out of the hands of, of Bernie Sanders, and then, if necessary, toss the ball 
to Kane and Warren because Clinton will have been so tarnished and is so tarnished that all of the propaganda and advertising in the world cannot turn that 67% negative rating. And with Trump running, what he, what he said he will run, a 16-state industrial state campaign, states of the Rust Belt. And this is a very close election, which the Democrats, with all of their money and, every, and all of that they have on the ground, can't say it's in the bag. And therefore, maybe by Labor Day, Clinton will not be the nominee. Maybe she will. And I think going forward, they face the possibility of an ignominious defeat, which has the consequence of ending the Democratic Party as we know it. Well, look, that I, would be... I explain that more. That would be a great, that would be a great thing, obviously. Yeah. The Democratic Party You collapsing. think I'm too optimistic. <laughs> well, I definitely do. I, there's no doubt I think you're too optimistic. Um, why, I, is the old, why is the old guy more optimistic than the young guy? <laughs> I, that, let's, not, let's not psychologize because it might send us down yeah. really ugly directions. But, uh, oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> but, but... Uh, uh, okay, we're I, we're already over the time, but this point has to be made. All right, so the question the question then I think Hillary goes all the way. I don't see any. I don't think there's any chance of her dropping out. But leave that leaving that aside. Okay, I think that the real question here um, that it really boils down to is: Can Trump win? Certain key states. Okay, that's what it. Like, that's what it ends up with. Trump. Well, which can, ones? Trump can. Up. Okay, Trump can obviously win in. I think in Michigan, in Wisconsin. I think he could pull Ohio. I think that all of those, all of that area, the Rust Belt and whatever. I think he can win. Now, um, let's assume for a second he wins all of those. Based on how I read the electoral map. Even if Trump wins all of those, he still loses to Hillary if he doesn't carry Virginia, Pennsylvania, and Florida. Florida, right. Those three states. Okay. Right. Now, if he – let's assume for a second uh, – I don't think that – personally, I don't think that the vice president really adds all that much to a ticket. Mm-hmm. And I don't think he even necessarily even delivers his own state. I mean, him himself, he himself. Mm-hmm. So let's mm-hmm. assume for remember, a second. Remember, Gore didn't. didn't Gore couldn't Tennessee. win Tennessee. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. but leaving that aside, all right, let's assume for a second that Trump can, can win Virginia, despite McAuliffe, despite mm-hmm. Tim Kaine, he can win Virginia because it's mm-hmm. Southern. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of racial elements to it and whatever. Trump, based on the polls, has single-digit support from the African-American community in Pennsylvania and in a lot of and, and in Florida. Okay, that's mm-hmm. what the polls show. Based mm-hmm. on based on the you know some analysis from people who know this stuff a lot better than I do, from what I have read, it is impossible to win Pennsylvania without carrying at least some segment of the black vote in Philadelphia, which you know well, and Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. Okay, that mm-hmm. without the without that demographic, you cannot win Pennsylvania. There are not enough white workers to substitute mm-hmm. for the black communities mm-hmm. of those two cities. Okay, mm-hmm. so I see a major demographic problem for Trump there. 
Similarly, in Florida, no matter how many of the white, you know, workers and poor and, you know, trailer park types and whatever you can carry. Mm-hmm. I'm, I shouldn't say that in a, dis, in a disparaging way, but mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying. Right. Um, right. You know, mm-hmm. uh in Florida, despite how much of that you carry, if you can't carry the black vote in Florida, you lose Florida. And I don't mm-hmm. think that, and I don't see any way that you're going to change from late July to uh, to early November that particular problem for Trump. Well, and without the see, blacks of Florida yeah, and Pennsylvania, it, 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 he's sunk. Well, yeah, that, you know, uh, he has a black people, black vote problem. There's no question about it. But I think what people don't understand is, is that so does Hillary. It's a different kind of problem. It is a problem where people won't say, I'm not going to I'm going to vote for Trump, but they just won't turn out. And you could have a historic low or a relatively historic low black voter turnout because they're unhappy with both Trump and Hillary and a low voter turnout in Pennsylvania especially in Philadelphia. Now, Pittsburgh and Philadelphia are not the same in terms of black votes, black political organization and so on. They need they need almost a 70 percent black voter turnout in Philadelphia, with 95 percent of them going for Hillary Clinton to win Pennsylvania. That is going to be a huge task in this political environment. I, 95% of the black voters voting for Hil- of the black voters voting for Hillary I yes. think is reasonable. That's what the polls no, show. But, 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 but I, no, I know but what you're saying. Turnout. But right, exactly. Yeah. That's the two that's a second piece. So the percentage of the voters I think Hillary could get. The turnout I think is a real question, but that but turnout right. is not about necessarily the vibrancy or you know appeal of a candidate mm-hmm. as much as it is a testament to a political machine. Right, an on-the-ground mm-hmm. political apparatus. Now, the Clintons and the Democratic Party have the apparatus to do it, whether it's with the black preachers in the churches or whatever it might mm-hmm. be. They have mm-hmm. the, the the weapons with which they can they can they can do that. Whether they'll be able to, I don't know. Open question, right. I That's suppose. My point. Yeah. Yeah. No. I, but I, I, I think I think I think I think the fact remains that going forward. Clinton is becoming uh, the symbol of corruption and and uh, untrustworthiness and self-servingness. She has a problem of the way that over two thirds of the American public view her. And of course, she's going it's going to be a negative campaign on both sides and the one left standing is the one who was able to weather the storm of negativity the best. Uh, I don't know who wins. I know that it's going to be hard and, and, and increasingly difficult for Clinton to win. That is the candidate of the status quo. But whoever wins, the party system and the political elite that have dominated it, Uh, since the end of World War II, will not be the same. The country has uh, irreversibly entered upon the path of change. How deep and fundamental that change will be, it's anybody's guess. So in a sense... we are... Mm -hmm, Sorry, sorry. go ahead. I'm sorry. No, 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 you go ahead. I'm sorry. So So in a sense, you're saying that Obama brought us hope and change. 
<laughs> I, I wouldn't say that, but a I know, good yeah. comedian might. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, and that's I, you know, but that's that's the height of, of cynicism, and it could you. I mean, maybe you want to, but I would say the uh, that which brought uh, Obama to the presidency, which was the economic uh, recession of 2008, has uh, unraveled, and the consequences of which. Uh, has has begun on the unraveling of the political system and the political ruling class as we know it. I think that I think that there's a I think that there's a lot of truth to that. All right, uh, we're we're basically out of time, but I I, I want to just um, oh, I want to thank you for coming on the show, <laughs> but I want to just make one one final point here as well, and I want to get your take on it because I think that mm-hmm. the the election. The election is sort of the circus, and and sometimes we forget that there that we have to sort of take the longest view possible. You talked about taking the long view. We need to take a longer view, I think, oftentimes, and and in this case, I think we really need to. We are we are on the verge of a potential world war scenario. Mm-hmm. We are, and I think, and a lot of people have written about it. John Pilger has written about that quite brilliantly. I mm-hmm. think recently, a lot of others mm-hmm. have as well. I've been talking about it for a while. Mm-hmm. We have that. Mm-hmm. We have that possibility, given everything that's happening as far as U.S. warmongering against Russia, NATO expansion, all of the rest of that. Uh, we have similarly an economic system that is teetering on the brink of uh, of a major mm-hmm. crisis, if mm-hmm. not meltdown. Mm-hmm. Right, that would have mm-hmm. global implications, and no country would be spared and then mm-hmm. the and then the third you talked about sort of three pillars <laughs> earlier and mm-hmm. the political side mm-hmm. of this here's the three pillars mm-hmm. of crisis that we need to be approaching mm-hmm. so we, we have a world war we have an economic crisis and i think we have a climate catastrophe on the verge of major mm-hmm. meltdown right. that right. is going to right. create shock waves around the world that are almost difficult to comprehend you know just yesterday mm-hmm. i saw a story 100 and 140 degrees in a part of iran 140 degrees that's unlivable that is is unlivable Mm -hmm. now what happens Mm -hmm. when major swaths of africa and central asia or you know the 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 Mm -hmm. middle east or central asia Mm -hmm. uh, become unlivable because of climate change you talk uh, Mm -hmm. look at the refugee crisis destabilizing europe already you're talking about a wave of refugees that would be unimaginable Mm -hmm. okay Mm -hmm. The reason I bring this up is because one of the problems I think we have is a lack of a sense of urgency. We mm-hmm. have a we need to have a yeah. sense of urgency of all of what we're talking about here mm-hmm. and that we can't simply we can't simply afford to wait around any longer to mobilize and to organize and this is part of my you know uh, problem mm-hmm. with the left is that the kind of organizing they're doing whether it was for Sanders whether against Trump or whatever mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. going to be relevant against the backdrop of these crises we need Sorry. new ways of organizing new ways of mobilizing resistance Mm -hmm. and that's something you and i have talked about many times as i've talked about on Mm -hmm. this show 
undermining the corporate structure, creating local alternatives, creating food security for the hungry, uh, Mm -hmm. defending the homes of people who are being foreclosed on, uh, creating Mm -hmm. mass-based, community-based movements inside of the most oppressed and marginalized communities. That, to me, Mm -hmm. is where the real uh, political organizing is going to be done, and we're running out of time. And the elections, Mm -hmm. in my view, are in in, in many ways, a total distraction. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I wouldn't say a total distraction. I say it's part of the process of ideological uh, and political development. And, and what makes this such an important and unique election is the level of activism on all sides. Uh, but you're absolutely right. Uh, we are in uh, a crisis. Uh, the likes of which humanity has never confronted. And the two great dangers of climate, uh, disaster, and world war, including nuclear war, which then contributes to climate and disaster and vice, you know, uh, you're absolutely right. And there has to be a greater urgency, but the urgency must be grounded in some sort of ideological clarity upon which mass consciousness can be developed. I totally agree. I think what what was it? What was what was King's statement? The fierce urgency of now. The fierce urgency of now. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. The fierce urgency. And as is, the, the other part of it is tomorrow is today. Yeah. Well said. That's where we will leave it. Beautiful. <laughs> Very poetic. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Tony. All right. Tony Montero. Well, always, Dr. always. Dr. Anthony Montero, uh, he is, uh, he's one of the best. Love the guy. Follow his work. See his stuff on Black Agenda Report. Follow him on, he's a regular contributor on uh, Community community Public Radio with Don DeBar and all over the place. You should definitely follow him. Uh, you know, get friends with him on Facebook. See his work. He's, he's, he's great. Um, lots of good work on Du Bois and, and, and other uh, Marxist thinkers and left thinkers. Anyway, uh, Tony, thanks for coming on the show. Listeners, thank, thank you, you as always. I'll catch you all next week. 